As human beings, we spend a lot of our time stuck, mired in things like isolation and addiction, regret and resentment, bigotry and abuse. The list of things that weigh down a human life is lengthy and wearisome. But when freedom finally comes, it often appears in unexpected ways and from unexpected places. The Stuck Audio Project is about preserving and pondering those stories of liberation. We believe that by hearing and receiving the stories of others, we open our hearts to the forces of change. The stories you'll hear on the Stuck Podcast come from ordinary people, reflecting on their daily journeys with Christ. On the journey of life, some have come far, and some still have a long way to go. None of them are perfect, but all of them have had genuine tastes of freedom. Today's conversation is with Dan. Dan is a survivor of so many different things. As you listen to his account, I invite you to ponder how his story connects to your own. I'll first off start out, I was born in Muskegon, Michigan in 1959. Um, my mother was, her name was Susan, and my father was Donald DeVere. And my mother married my father at 16 or 15. Anyway, it was uh, a very, very violent beginning. My mother had nine children, and out of the nine children, there were only three of us that survived. My father routinely beat my mother, and she miscarried most all the other ones. So I was a survivor from the very get-go. My father was an extremely abusive alcoholic. My mother grew up in a deer camp, which was in northern Michigan, was raised by her grandmother. And my mother was very tossed around a lot by men. And she grew up in that. And I think it was a fight or flight thing when she met my father that she hooked up with him and things progressed in that level. It was a total codependency thing. So it was an issue of survival for her. And she took the abuses throughout those years. Now, growing up for me meant a lot of moving around. I was never networked in fully in a community. And during those early years, there was absolutely no recognition of spirituality of any kind. My father didn't, he never mentioned church. My mother, um, as time went on, was a self-professed atheist. And I think that that was due to her abuse beating her down so badly that it just wasn't there for her. Growing up for myself, I hung around with a lot of older people, a lot of growing up. I was virtually on my own on a physical level at the age of 15, early 15. And I lived in a hotel, and at that time, the state of Michigan had a thing called independent living. Well, as a ward of the state, they didn't put me in a foster home or children home because I was combative to it. So there was no other option. So the state took me on and put me on basically a welfare system 
program during my early years. So I lived in a hotel. I took care of myself, did my own laundry, those kind of things. Um, the partying side of my life was in bloom at that time. Um, my first cigarette I ever had was okayed by my mother, which was 50-something years ago. The drinking as well. If you're going to drink, drink in front of me. During those tumultuous years, my mother finally had had enough of my father and had left him after 18 years. Well, then she took up with another man who was worse. And the decision where we had split was around 14, 15. I couldn't take his abuse. His beatings were pretty severe. And I ran away a lot. So I became a habitual runaway. And I learned a lot of unsavory coping skills for myself at that age. Uh, for instance, the, we moved from the town that I grew up in to a place 60 miles north of there. And I still had my ties to the hood. So I would run away and I would hitchhike daily to Muskegon from where we lived. And I would panhandle. I would just tell stories to the rides. And I would get this money from them on the trips. And then I would subs subsequently, when I got there, I'd party it up. So I was becoming an alcoholic and an addict even at that age. Didn't really realize it at the time. But it became a double-edged sword where I was creating a new reality for myself. Becoming my own person and developing these skills. None of them were healthy by any means. But they aided me in my survival. Also, at that time, I was back and forth fighting with my mother throughout trying to get her to leave the guy that she had married. And she had come right out and said that, you know, if I had to choose between you or him, I'm choosing him. So that was the way it went. And as I progressed, it was a lot of mediocre criminal charges of, you know, self-destructive behaviors. I would break a window and I would act out in these kind of ways. And um, also what during that time, at, uh, I think I was around 17, I had ran away and went to Florida and was subsequently raped outside of a bus station. And that later went on to solidify even more of this barrier. I became very uh, angry, hateful, hateful with the world, still pretty much on my own by myself. And then it became a routine of going to jail. It seemed like every six months to a year, I was always on probation, always answering to somebody. And it progressed little by little. It got worse over the years. Now, during that time, I was introduced to spirituality through the jail system. So I was taking in information from the people that would visit the jails on a routine basis. And I had an interest, but more interested 
to me was the people that I encountered in the world that had the Christian upbringing or the, the solid family unit by that time seemed very foreign to me. So I had a real, real fascination with, wow, these people are, you know, what is it about these people? But I could never really connect. And because of that, that fueled the alcohol and drug use even more. So I had bouts of spirituality between times with the jails and, and in and out. Now, I want to take this up a little bit to my early 20s. I had committed an armed robbery in a diner in Tennessee. Now, Tennessee was far from Michigan, and it was in a situation where I was coming from Florida. So when I got, I got the charge of armed robbery, by the way, it was $30, $35. And I was sentenced to a, a 10-year sentence, a flat 10-year sentence. They didn't have good honor time at that time. So at the age of 20, I was starting a 10-year sentence. Now, keep in mind that through my early years, and I was developing these survival techniques of getting through jails and prisons and institutions, I was really honing my skills for the big time. And it was very, very natural for me to fall into the environment of the unwanted. So I was able to do the 10 years. I developed a hardenedness about myself. Um, I had once beat a man almost to death, and I ended up in a maximum security prison. And when I ended up in the maximum security prison, I was given a job as a rock man, a janitor on death row. So I worked on death row for about four years. Um, one of the guys that I was with in this unit six that was death row uh, was James Earl Ray. James Earl Ray had attempts on his life at Brushy Mountain, and he was sentenced to the main prison in Nashville, where I was at, for his own safety. And because I was a, a single man and I was from another state, that allowed them to give me this position to deal with the inmates. And um, during that time, you would work two days on and then two days off. They did that for depression and for mental health reasons. So once again, the spiritual aspect came up again in the sense of, you know, do we have the right to take someone's life? Why does the state have that right? So that battle was kind of going on with me. And I was reading the Bible at the time. So I was cultivating my own opinions. As time went on, I did, I did the 10 years. And um, when I came out, I was pretty well institutionalized. I was used to the prison world and the, and the incarceration side of life to where I put this facade on of fake it till you make it. I remember one of the hardest difficulties for me was coming out. I went in the system and it was during the disco era. And when I came out, 
there were ATM machines. And I remember being terrified because I had no idea what these things were about. And yet I would fake my way through it, just like I'd faked my way through my entire life to succeed. At that time, I had paroled. I had a little bit of parole time that I had to do. And during that time, it was in the 80s. And I was messing up with my parole officer so bad that he wanted me to go back to Tennessee. So he said, I'll give you an option of going into a treatment program and helping yourself, or I can send you back. So I went into a treatment program in Grand Rapids. And during that time, I'd met another fellow ex-convict, and we kind of clicked together. And he had a girlfriend who was in a symphony. So he said, hey, she's got a friend. He'll set you up on a blind date. So I did. And this is when I met Judy. Judy was a Dutch Christian reform, blue blood. She had a degrees in accounting. She was very successful. Her father was one of the finest Christian men I ever met. Um, he was a principal at Comstock High School and tenured for many years, owned a couple of businesses, very successful, traveled around the world in his lifetime. But there was still this unseen barrier where I could not fit. I did my best to hold down a job. I worked construction, was making pretty good money. Judy was kind of schooling me along and I was able to make it work, but not make it work. And as a result, the drinking and the drugging once again took a hold and little by little destroyed me. So Judy and I parted ways. By this time, I resented spirituality because I figured, if you know, okay, God, I went your way. I went and did. I went and married this one. Things didn't roll, you know. So her and I parted ways, and then I'd moved farther north in Michigan, and it was a very wooded area. I took up with a lot of Vietnam vets, um, a lot of antisocials, a lot of ex-hardened prisoners, you know, ex-convicts, and we pretty much stayed in the woods and drank and got high daily. You know, it, it wasn't even a very fun kind of way of partying. It was like half gallons of whiskey and you drank till you couldn't see. And we did this on a daily basis. Well, by this time I'd already wrecked my life so badly that as far as employment goes, I was very unemployable in every sense of the word. So I resulted to doing what I knew how to do surviving-wise. I, I dealt drugs. I dabbled a lot in it. I, I just was in a state of survival. So then I, I went through this period for probably about eight, ten years of this, this kind of existence. Well, then I had met someone. Her name was Maggie. Well, I got to, before I get to Maggie, there's one other one. I moved into a trailer park 
And in this trailer park, I had a handful of buddies that I party with all the time. And they said, you know what? You've seen this gal, Jesse. You know, we'll throw you the reception from hell if you'll marry her. I said, well, yeah, it's on. So I married her. I was with Jesse for about 90 days and I sobered up and I didn't like her. So I left. And I never divorced her. I just left. So I don't even to this day know if she's even alive. But in the meantime, I went through a lot of really hard, hard mental anguish times where I became suicidal in thinking. I think I was just acting out. I don't think that the intent was really there, but I think that I was just beaten down so badly at this stage. And I knew that I was on the verge of going back to prison again because I knew that world. And I had met this woman named Maggie. Now, Maggie had moved into this trailer park and was going through a very, very bad divorce. And her daughter had introduced us. And Maggie seemed like the companion that would work for me. So I began a relationship with her. This relationship went on for 23 years. We stayed lived together for 23 years. She knew my background, accepted me as is. But in hindsight, I can tell you now that Maggie was an unrecoverable alcoholic. She drank her whiskey on a regular basis. And so she became that companion for me in the sense that it allowed me to be who I am and continue to do what I wanted without consequences. So we had left Manistee where we were living, moved to Grand Haven. Now, during this time, I decided to really put 100% into changing my life. I got serious with the AA program, and the, the 12 steps are very crucial in what I'm talking about today. So I got to Grand Haven, got a job in a pallet factory. We got an apartment together. And I really said, no, I want to do something different. So I started going to meetings. And the 12 steps were presented to me by a very good friend. And he became my sponsor. But he was also a counselor. So he was actually walking me through the 12 steps of the program one at a time, and thoroughly. So it had a meaning to me to break the cycle. I had about four years of very good quality sobriety at the time. I'd even joined the uh, Alano Club there in, in Grand Haven and had made it to the board. I became a board member. And I showed that. I, you know, I, I was really moving then. Then I moved on and I got a really decent job. I worked for a place called Shape Corporation who made bumpers for the automotive industry. So working this job, I, I had a lot of responsibility, bought a brand new house, bought Maggie a brand new Cavalier, and I bought a Cadillac. Life was good. Still going to meetings. I was really working the program. At this time, I chose to become a Catholic because Maggie was an old Polish Catholic. 
So I decided to take catechism. I went through my catechumen in Grand Haven. And then I was baptized Catholic. And I really felt like I had a hold finally on the world after all those years. Little be announced to me, it was really the very ratcheting up of the bad. One day I went to work. I was uh, in charge of shipping and receiving of this company. And I was on a high loan. I was backing out with a load on the front. And somebody had walked out behind me. And I didn't see them. And I ran over. It was a lady's foot. And I was just devastated mentally. I had to go take a drug test, which I'd passed. You know, that wasn't the issue. But the guilt that I felt for hurting that woman had triggered me into a depression like I'd never known. I mean, it was just totally horrendous. Um, the company put me on hold for the investigation. The depression had came on. Then I'd lost my sobriety. So I'd walked away from the program. Then I'd made an ass out of myself and went to the company drunk one night, which was totally dipsticky. I ended up uh, getting a DUI and then I went and got a lawyer and I went and seen a doctor. And the doctor says, no, he says, you are suffering from severe depression. So he said, okay, I'm going to start you out on these various drugs. Well, then he happened to be very pharmaceutically happy. So he started giving me all these well-known drugs that I really liked. The Clonopin, the you know, the Xanny, the Xanaxes, the the whole spectrum. Well, I just can't eat drugs. I got to drink with them too. I got to kick them off good. So a week later, I'd gotten a second DUI. By this time, Maggie was fed up. Where the house was in jeopardy, the job was pretty much was trashed out the window. My depression was still uncontrolled, and I was still manic as all get out. So the doctor said, look, he said, this is not going to be any better for you for the rest of your life. I suggest you set up an appointment with a psychiatrist. We'll get you in for testing and really get to the bottom of this because you have had a history so long and so many years. There's something more to this that we're not looking at. So. I went through and did the interview with the psychiatrist. And in the meantime, I got a third DUI. This time I totaled up Maggie's brand new car, hit telephone poles. It was just a mess. Three DUIs in three weeks. And I'm still cycling in the disaster side of life. So I'd seen the psychiatrist and in the same time, I was blaming the officer on my third DUI. It was his fault, not my fault. So here's where the internal side of me took off. I became very self-destructive and I was so angry at the time. I'd gotten a case of beer and had nailed myself in a wooden shed. And I called 911 because this officer that had given me the DUI was working and I knew that he would be out there. So when he showed up, I had taken a propane tank 
and was threatening to blow up the shed with him in it. And I had a standoff with the law for about, oh, I'd say about 14, 16 hours. And they finally got me through to, his name was Judge Kloop. And I, I said, you get me through to Judge Kloop and I'll surrender. And I told him, I says, look, I've never denied anything I've ever done wrong, but I'm not going to accept this under his terms because what he's doing isn't right. I did do the DUIs. I would have admitted to them. He heard me out. I surrendered and then I went in to jail. Now, because I'd said that I would blow this shed up with the propane tank, it became a charge of a felony charge of possession of explosives, which I had no idea was a very, very serious charge, you know, a heavy, heavy time charge. So I had all these DUIs pending. The mental health report from the psychiatrist that came through and they said, no, you're bipolar. You've been bipolar and manic for many years. They even put me in line for Social Security, but I had all these charges pending and everything going on. So the judge, once he found out what the psychiatrist had to say, he was very, very lenient with me. He gave me a sentence of three and a half to 15 years, dismissed the DUIs and and all that. So once again, I went back into the prison system. Now, keep in mind, as much as I'd put Maggie through, she still hung in there for me. So I started the sentence, and those three years that she stuck by me, They had processed the Social Security, but they said I couldn't get it until I was released. So I thought, okay, what am I going to do with my life now? I'm I'm disabled. I got a heck of a career, bad record. What am I going to do? So I told Megan when I was getting out of prison, I said I would take the, the lump sum first payment and I would buy some property. And that way she would be taken care of and... We'd, we would survive it. So I did. I bought 10 acres. Now the hustle side of me came back. I thought, well, Michigan's legal on the medicinal marijuana. So I'm disabled and I qualify. So I went and got a card. And that was my next career. I became a weed grower. And I was very successful at it. But at the same time, I was feeding her addiction and I was feeding my addictions. And this was about an eight-year run at the end of it with Maggie and I. Her and I were disintegrating. We were not even friends anymore. We were just cohabitating. Totally blown out every day. I was doing hardcore drugs as well as soft drugs. And I knew that if I didn't end, that I would die. I was going out constantly daily, throwing up, starting over again, throwing up, starting over. And I lived that way. Now, I also lived the life as a weed grower. And the life of a weed grower is very, very isolated. I didn't go to town, but maybe once a year. I'd always send Maggie to do all the running. I bought her a brand new Toyota 4Runner and, you know, 
She kept, she got her fifth every week, and she did all the errands, and I stayed home and grew weed until the season was over. And it became a vicious cycle of insanity. You know, I really loved growing the plant. I didn't care much about the circumstances of it. But it was legit for me to do. But as my health deteriorated and I knew that I couldn't keep doing it, I had to make a decision. So I told Maggie, I said, we're either going to stay together and go get help together and turn this around or I got to go. So I did. And I left her and I left her with everything. The 10 acres, we had a rental house, the whole nine yards. I decided to go out west. I'd never been out west in my life. So I went out to Colorado. I figured if worse comes to worse, I can always lean on what I know do what I can do best. I grow wheat. When I got to Colorado and they had just been legal for a very short time, I got to see a side of the industry of weed that I'd never known before. And I looked at the way they were manipulating the plant the the stuff called shatter and you know the potency was just way beyond anything I ever dreamed or expected and it really turned me off it turned me away from it so I had the guilt and shame of those eight years of growing on top of it and as my addiction took off I found a lot of comfort in opiates so I started doing heroin I became very strung out. I really became a, a full-blown junkie and a, and a chronic alcoholic. And I would, I had met this woman. I stayed with her briefly, but I found there was a church there. It was a Methodist church. Uh, his name was Pastor Eric. And I would go in and I'd talk to Pastor Eric, and I would, for some reason, I, I had a, a companionship with him that was very unique. And I had been down hard enough in that stay in Colorado to where I became homeless. So I could really relate to the homeless. And I felt comfortable there because I'm a, I'm a piece of shit. There's just, this is where I need to be. This is where I was convinced. I did this for about five, five six months. And it got so badly, I was thrown out of shelters. I couldn't even uh, do the homeless shelters. They wouldn't have me. I was unruly. I was just, I was a real jerk. So after those avenues were exhausted, Pastor Eric became quite concerned for me. He was always daily looking out for me. And I would always go to the church and I would make myself available to help him in any way I could. And sometimes I would hand out food at the church and the camaraderie. There were a few ladies there at the church that were like motherly to me that I took to. And I finally was finding a little slice in spirituality that I'd never known. I was really seeking at that time. And I would go into the uh, sanctuary and there was a, a window up above and it had a Jesus and a bunch of lambs and stained glass. And I would always say, which sheep am I, you know? And there was always the one way in the back. So 
that hoping glimmer was there, but the desperation of my disease had really taken a hold of me and it really had me physically to the nines. I was homeless and I had nowhere to go and Eric told me, he says, look, I have a Rubbermaid shed in the back. I can't tell you you can stay there, but it's unlocked. And he gave me, I think it was like $5, $7. And he says, go over to Goodwill and get yourself a sleeping bag or a heavy blanket. And I did. This is where God came into my life. I remember being in that Rubbermaid shed in Colorado, where, you know, Colorado Rockies are cold at night. And I was desperately sick, sick and terrified of going forward any further. And I was so angry, defeated, defeated to the nines. And I said, God, I don't, I really don't think I got much more in me. I really don't, I think I'm at the, I'm at the last mile. And I remember asking him to help me. If I try to do it your way, not my way. Because I always knew that was crucial. I learned that in the AA early years before. But see, I'm going to let you in on a big secret as we go here. So I said, okay, God, I'm going to 100% give myself to you. You got to help me. I mean, please, you know, it was that desperate plea, and he did. But there was a condition that I had to do, and I knew all my life that I'd ran from. When I go back to the very beginning again, the bottom line in the fact was I was an unwanted child. I was a mistake of my mother and father and was treated as such from the very beginning. I always know deep down in my heart that I was unwanted, but I would never accept that truth. For me to get right with God meant I had to go back and I had to forgive them. Something I was never, ever, ever, ever willing to do. But I knew that if I was gonna be honest with God, I had to. The release and freedom that that gave me was beyond anything I could ever explain to you. Because it was like, like John, the shackles came off in that prison. Finally, for the first time, I'd stopped running. I could begin to accept Dan as Dan was. Everything began to make sense. I was still on shaky ground in Colorado. And then Maggie had been in touch with me and she said, could you please come back to Michigan? There's a chance that I could save the property. It's going into foreclosure. 
I figured, well, 23 years with the woman, she deserved at least a shot at getting it if she could. So I agreed to come back to Michigan, which, uh, to be quite frank with you, was probably the worst thing that I could have done. Because I got back to Michigan and we ended up going to court and we still lost. And I had subjected myself coming back to Maggie with all her anger and rage at, at the failing of the 23 years. So here I was back in Michigan and had nothing to look forward to. I had just had that little slice of God and it was enough. So I had met, I had met Kim, who I am with now online. And I said, Kim, I said, I really need to, I need to start my life over. She said, well, why don't you come to Wisconsin? I said, yeah, I'm in. Now, before this had happened, I ended up in the psych ward. I had a mental burnout. I had just mentally collapsed. All this up and down for this, this cycle was just too much for me to handle. So they, they got me straightened out on the uh, bipolar side of it with some medications and stuff. And I had to hunker down for a couple of weeks in the rental house in the property while Maggie lived on, up behind me. I started drinking, not to the extreme, but it was enough because I couldn't handle being alone. I had no car. I was stuck. So Kim said, okay, first of all, she came around the lake and from Wisconsin in a rental truck and came and got me. The clarity of all this came together through Kim's son. When I came here, I knew that I had to have a 12-step program in my life, and I knew I definitely had to have God first. So when I came here to Wisconsin, not knowing a single soul, I said, the first thing I need is a church. I don't care which one it is. The closest one is going to work. And it happened to be a half a block over. So I walked over to that church, didn't try to meet anybody. This was about me and God. Okay, I'm here. I'm doing your will today. I'm here serving you. I don't want to drink and I don't want to get high and I don't want to go backwards anymore. And I remember sitting there in those early days and it was very, very null and void. There was, there was no feeling. I was there going through the motions, paying my respects to God like he wanted me to. I got to meet Kim's son and Kim's son was the door opener for me. Because all of this that I've shared with you to this point all came out in me dealing with him because I saw in him, my father, the way he was abusing Kim, the way the, the cycles of abuse, I could see him all over again in my life only through a whole separate person. And it all made sense. I eventually uh, got her son moved out, got Kim into some counseling. I continued to go every day over to the church. And I would pray. And I would go to a meeting. They had a meeting in the same church on Saturdays. So I was starting over with my program. And I was starting over with God. And little by little, 
miracles began to happen. Kim started getting better. I started feeling better about my life. I felt like I really was starting over for the first time. It was almost about a year into the church that I was allowing myself to get to know the people there. I met a woman named Lori who was working the desk at the church, and her and I became friends. She'd see me come in every day, never bother me. She knew I was coming in to pray, and then I'd leave. And little by little, I started sharing with her about my life. And then a few months later, I met the pastor, Pastor, Ro pastor Roger. He seemed really surprised that my conviction in, in daily prayer was, was significant. And it became really regimented in me. And the more that the, the craziness stopped and was being replaced by little gifts of hope, it started to cycle. And I thought, man, this is that spiritual awakening that I've always heard about. But for the first time, I felt it. Things progressed a little more, and um, I got to know Pastor Roger, and then it became house cleaning time. Because I knew that that confrontation had to come out. The soul sickness of myself had to be discussed. And that is what really, really cemented my spiritualities because I believe confession is the key. You've got to be honest to your, to your core in order for you to have a chance at, at real spirituality. And I remember going in and talking to Roger. And I unloaded, I said, you know, I've had 60 years of hatred they were dead, and I was still hating them. How could you not want me? It was the way it was supposed to be. I can say that now because all of my hardship and all of my life that I've survived through have given me tools of unbelievable measure because I have an understanding of the broken, the downtrodden, to the extreme. There isn't anything that hasn't happened to me that I haven't overcome that I can't share and relate to others with. Now, I told you years before I, I became Catholic and I chose St. Francis as my patron saint during my catechumen because I really believed that Francis loved the poor and the broken. And I've always admired Francis throughout my entire spiritual connection here. As I unloaded and cleaned my life and my soul and my heart with God, things started coming in that I didn't expect. I met a man in, in downtown Appleton in the middle of winter, homeless man. And I can tell you his name. His name was Everett. I went in it to town because I just had to reach out to somebody homeless. It was filling a void in me to do that. And I met Ebert and I gave him the gloves off my hands and I bought him a cup of coffee. 
as a, as a result of that, I came back and told the church what had done for me. And I started a glove thing. So every year now, this is like four years now, it's been going on and I'm getting gloves every year and handing them out. I hand them out on the buses. I go to food pantries. I, it brings me so much joy. You see, I never could give with that restriction in my heart. As time went on and I got to understand John, the Apostle John, I see the correlation, the similarities. And now we got to throw old Luther in there. You know, Luther had a crassness that I just admire. He went against the grain. He was that 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 warrior and there's that little warrior in me and it's all kind of come together and gelled into something so big and beautiful and wonderful for me that I had made the decision back last October to become a Franciscan I want to become a Lutheran Franciscan and I'm doing this to honor God for him honoring me I'm a few months into my postulancy right now. But I share my story, just like I have with you today. I share it whenever I need to and wherever it can be heard. Because I am a sign of hope. You see, when everybody else didn't want me, God did. I just wouldn't do it his way. See, and I got that right now. And uh, I only have one goal in life anymore, and, I, and that's to die clean and sober. That is my goal. Everything else is a bonus. By the way, I also got a job at the church. I'm a custodian. And I remember my early days with the toilet brush were not very pleasant for me. That fight in me was still going on. But now I clean my bathrooms for my family, and they are my family. And I think it's one of the most beautiful, wonderful feelings in the world to have a whole congregation that I consider my family. Because they all reach me in different ways. And they all support me through, through everything I've been through. I'm enjoying the best four years of my life. So... I'm so glad that I could share this with you today, Mike. This, this is just great, Dan. I mean, I am so struck by how the Spirit has been at work in your life and also how powerful this testimony is. I hope that you're given many opportunities to share it. Well, I hope that you will share this. I will. Share this as, as much as you need. I really... I want you to know that there is an upside. For every loss, there's a gain. And the more that you surrender. See, there's a big difference between submission and surrender. I was in a state of submission and not surrender. And now I know for a fact that the best way to hold on is to let go. And and so your... Uh your movement into Franciscanism is, is a way of letting go in some ways, right? Yes. It's not about me. You see, I've lived in a state of survival all my life. It was always about me. 
but it's not. It's about we. And I can't make up for the very bad roads of the past, but I can make the journey ahead better. And, and it sounds like you're also pretty involved in helping other people get out of... Daily, daily. I do this daily. Right now, especially with the pandemic going on, um, I listen to the police scanner at, at night and I listen to all the calls of you know, suicide attempts. I recently completed the uh, mental health first aid class from NAMI. So I'm qualified to do the... Uh, do the first reach, you know, so I do. But I do it for more than that, because for the grace of God go I. All I got to do is quit doing what I've been doing. And I could be on that end. I, I don't want to go there. <laughs> I don't want that pain anymore. Dan, I can't tell you, I'm so grateful and, and blessed also just to hear your story. It's really, really powerful. And like I said, I hope a lot of people get to hear it. And I really feel privileged and honored to be able to do this for you today. And like I said, brother, share this story because it's the truth. And there is hope. When you decide to quit running and decide to get real and honest. And honesty is the key. Thank you for listening to the Stuck Podcast. We want to invite you to engage this material even further through the show notes below. There you'll find a series of questions, prompts, and biblical texts that will invite you to reflect on how God is at work in your life and to think even more deeply on the places where you might, in fact, be stuck. Thanks again for listening.